Welcome back to the Vine Church Podcast. Today, we are continuing our sermon series, Seeing Jesus, exploring the first nine chapters of Luke's Gospel. If you haven't already, you can find us on YouTube at the Vine Church Heart, and we'd love to have you join us over there. Hi, everyone. Great to see you this morning. Um, so open up in your, book, in your Bibles, if you would, to Luke chapter 5. And uh, I have to tell you, I just think this passage is a real peach of a story. It's, a, it's just so powerful, so profound. I hope that I can give it some justice to you this morning and help you to see just how powerful this encounter is with Levi, the tax collector. And let's read in chapter 5. Uh, and we uh, just a few verses in chapter 5, verse 27, the calling of Levi. And after this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up, left everything and followed him. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples, why do you eat with and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have come to, not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. When I was at Sixth Form College, a few years ago, I, I did an economics A-level, and I can remember that um, we used to spend a lot of time with the teacher talking about life, the universe, and everything, politics, economics. Uh, I'm not sure how much we were learning about the actual curriculum, but um, we decided one day that we'd take advantage of our teacher's slightly more laid-back approach to learning. And so before he arrived in the lesson, we kind of moved the clock forward in the classroom by five minutes. And uh, over the future lessons, I can remember the, 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 the students just moving it forward a few minutes at a time to see whether he would notice and he would let us out early from our lesson. Unfortunately for me, I was kind of perceived as the the, the class kind of teacher's pet, goody-goody. And so this teacher was starting to get a bit suspicious after a few lessons. And so eventually he turned to me and said, did these guys move the clock? And uh, of course, I'm afraid that I, I had to confess that this was true, much to the chagrin of my fellow classmates. You see, nobody likes a collaborator, do they? Nobody likes someone who kind of uh, uh, it collaborates with the enemy. And Levi, this tax collector, was someone who was doing just that. The word that we've just read here that would have popped out to the people who were reading this account is the word tax collector. And they were doubly hated by the Jews. Of course, firstly, for taking people's money. I mean, hands up if you like the government taking your money. I can't see too many hands up right now. But secondly, because of course they were collaborating with the Romans, a Jew taking money from his fellow Jews and giving it to the Gentile Romans who were occupying their land. 
this was not the thing to do. And of course, the Roman system that was running at the time uh, created a class of tax collectors drawn mainly from the patricians and equestrian classes. And uh, Herod Antipas would collect money on behalf of Rome and then send it to Rome. And the way that he would do this would be that he'd give a franchise to the highest bidder in the district who would then raise the money from that district, say from Galilee, and then take some extra for himself and, and then give it over to Herod Antipas who would pass it on. Now, the Romans had tried to reform the system, but it was open to abuse and exploitation. And there were two types of taxes that were collected. There were the kind of fixed taxes, income taxes, ground taxes, and then there were all kinds of duties that were payable as well. And this is probably what Levi was responsible for collecting. So if you used the main roads, uh, if you used the harbours in the markets, you would pay duties for the privilege of doing all these things. A tax was payable on your cart, even on each wheel that you had on your cart. On the animal that drew it, there were purchase tax, import taxes, export duties. And a tax collector could bid a man on the road to stop, unpack his bundles and charge him well nigh what he liked. There wasn't the internet, there wasn't a way of checking what the going rate should have been and so on. And so it was open to abuse. And so tax collectors were really numbered um, alongside, say, robbers, murderers. They were classed. They were barred from the synagogue. And of course, they were extremely unpopular. It was a lucrative profession, but it was a vicious circle, wasn't there? The more tax that you took, the more people hated you. The more people hated you, well, the more tax you probably took from them. Now, last time we looked in Luke's gospel, we saw how um, Jesus had healed a paralytic, had been lowered through the roof, and Jesus had declared his sins forgiven and then had healed his body, and the man had got up and walked. And we saw there how Jesus deals with the whole person. He heals completely. He forgave he healed his body, even restoring his muscles that had atrophied so that he could pick up his mat and walk. You see, Jesus doesn't do half a job. He finishes a job. He does a complete work in our lives. There are no limits to what Jesus can do in us, you know. He was completely restores that guy. I would encourage you today, don't put limits on what God can do in your life. I can guarantee you that he can do more than you are currently expecting him to do in your life. Now, the question that we have now as we look at this next story is this. If there are no limits on what God can do for a person, are there any limits on the type of people that God will do something for? And so we come to the story of Levi. Are there some people that are just beyond the pale? You see, we can all make exceptions for ourselves, can't we? Does anybody find that you do that? You think, well, you know, everyone else can get COVID, but probably not me. Kind of make exceptions for ourselves, don't we? Or we may say, you know, 
God can bless everyone else, but probably not me. I remember watching um, a, a TV series called The Undoing with Hugh Grant and Nicole Kidman. And I listened to an interview with Nicole Kidman. She played a slightly different bohemian mum uh, with colourful clothes, but living in smart Manhattan amongst the upper classes, very black and white, and she was a bit different. And in the interview, she said this. She said, the thing is that everybody is an outsider. Everyone feels like they are different. They're an outsider. Now, in this encounter with Levi, Jesus is about to lob another grenade right in the Pharisees' direction. He's going to blow up some boundaries that seem uncrossable, some walls that seem unbreakable. You see, the Pharisees were separatists. They taught really kind of salvation by separation. And then there, so there were the respectable, clean people who don't need any help. And then there are the others. Those who are failing to adhere to their many rules are sinners, unclean outsiders to the grace of God. Now, Jesus had declared in his manifesto already that he had come for the outsiders. He had come for the oppressed the blind, for the captives, for the poor. You see, we have two choices, folks. We can take the road more traveled, which is kind of, I'm awesome. I don't need help. I'm right. I shall issue my Twitter judgment from whatever moral handbook I have decided. And from my throne of rightness, I will dictate to other people how they ought to be through the omniscient power of my keypad. Okay, we can kind of feel uh, that we are right. Or we can take the road less traveled, this other path of brokenness and humility and trembling. Like, I've got problems, don't I? I need help. Problems created by others in my life. Problems created by myself and my own sinfulness. And in my frailty and my weakness and my sin and my sickness, I need to reach out to someone who is perfect and pure and flawless and receive his unlimited grace. Now, Levi took that path. He knew that he was unqualified a sinner. And he most likely had already seen and heard Jesus touring around Galilee. He's by the lake. We read in Mark's gospel that Levi's booth is situated near the lake. And we see in this account that Jesus stops and looks at Levi. That word look means to kind of look intently, to search him out and to focus in on him as if to know him. Jesus looks at Levi. His eyes focused on him. You can imagine light piercing a darkened heart. And there's something about this encounter with Jesus that changes everything for Levi. 
Suddenly, he's not the big shot bully anymore, but a humble sinner who knows he needs a savior, that he is poor, a prisoner, blind and oppressed. And as he sits in his little tax booth, surrounded by his money, I like to imagine almost like this little tax booth is symbolic of the prison that he is in. Yeah, surrounded by money, but spiritually bankrupt, trapped. When I was preparing this sermon a few days ago, uh, someone, a friend, uh, not from the church, uh, knocked on my door. And uh, I thought, oh, no, I'm trying to prepare a sermon, you know. But the next 45 minutes is spent on the driveway chatting to this friend. And I'm thinking, I need to prepare my sermon. But my friend is telling me about his dreadful neighbor. I don't know if you've ever had, you know, that neighbor, you know, that dreadful neighbor. And this, this neighbor just all bitter and twisted and vindictive and petty and angry and unreasonable, just thoroughly unpleasant. And you know why he was like that? I was standing there listening to my friend and thinking, yeah, you know, like Levi, this guy, this neighbor is captive to his own kind of issues, his own problems, his own hatred, whatever, for whatever reason that is. You know, people are caught up and captured with these kinds of issues. And so 45 minutes later, I thanked my friend for helping me to prepare my sermon. For Levi, the hatred that God's people may have had towards him is nothing like the hatred that God had towards his sin. But unlike the people, God loves this sinner and intends for him to walk free. And so Jesus speaks two little words to him. Follow me. Not, hey, Levi, clean up your act a bit and then I might be able to use some of your talents, you know. Not, Levi, follow a system, take on some new morals. Hey, sign up for a course. No, Levi, just follow me. Powerful, irresistible, grace-saturated words. Follow me. God's words are so powerful, aren't they? To the darkness at the beginning, let there be light. To the storm on the lake, be still. To Lazarus in the tomb, come out. To Levi in his tax booth, follow me. Oh, may his words break through to us, to our darkness, to our storm, to our prisons. Follow me. Long my imprisoned spirit lay fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke. The dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth and followed thee. And Levi rose, went forth and followed 
him. He just gets up and walks away from his tax booth. Now, we're not saying that he didn't go back to sort out his affairs, but he left it. This is a big thing. We, it's quite thing going on here but you know the fishermen could at least go back to their boats and their fishing as we heard from Anita earlier on they did there's always fish in the sea for Levi to walk away from this franchise this lucrative business there's no going back he left everything and followed and he traipses around the countryside following Jesus just think what happens? Let me ask you a question. What happens when we follow Jesus? Imagine if you were doing an extension to your house, okay? And you thought, well, I'm kind of going to knock a back door through and then put a thing on the back of the house. It's going to be a little bit disruptive. There's going to be a bit of dust, but basically I keep my house the way it is and it's just we get an add-on. That is not what happens when we become a follower of Jesus. Just a little bit of disruption, but basically we keep it all and we just get an add-on. We've got Jesus now. We go to church when we've got time. <laughs> no, much bigger than that. You know, up the road, they're doing an extension and I had a little peek around one night. I tell you what, they have stripped and gutted that thing right back to the bare bone. The chimneys come out, the floors have been, you know, bashed the whole thing just stripped and gutted and almost rebuilt. You know, when we follow Jesus, he does even more than that. He takes the foundations out, lays new foundations in our lives and starts all over again with us. It's not like a, a wraparound extension, you know. Well, I get to keep the core and then you build everything around it. No, no, the core is rotten. Even that has to go. It's a wholesale rebuild. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't, we don't necessarily do what Levi did. I mean, you know, for most of us, we'll, we'll keep our jobs. We'll, we'll still go to college. We'll still have our friends. We'll still have hobbies and things. It's not that all those things disappear, but they're very different. Yeah, we still got a kitchen, but... It's a very different kitchen. We've still got a lounge, but it's brand new. Everything's different. It's the whole of life. So we need to understand that. Now, you might say, well, that sounds a bit scary, or maybe that sounds even, you might think, a bit boring to, to hand it all over to Jesus. I mean, I'm going to take Jamie, uh, my son, back to university this afternoon in Sheffield. And uh, it's been wonderful to have him with us serving, you know, but Jamie's going to drive us up to Sheffield. OK, I'm going to give him the key and he's taking the car and he's driving. I'm going to sit and try and behave and, and not criticize his fantastic driving. So I don't need to, of course, Jamie, do I? It's great. OK, but handing the key over to someone else and saying, come on, right, I'm giving you the driver's seat, the steering wheel of my life. That's not an easy thing to do. But consider what Jesus can do with a life fully surrendered. Matthew, that's right, that's Levi's other name. Matthew 
gets to break the silence of 400 years by penning the first gospel of our New Testament. Matthew could have just stayed in his little booth in obscurity, but he becomes a lifelong follower of Jesus and founder of the church. What an adventure! When he surrenders everything to Jesus, he doesn't know what's going to happen, but God does. And would you have wanted to have missed out on that? And so we see what happens now. In verse 29, he kicks his new life, this new adventure with Jesus off with a great big party in his great big house. It tells us that Levi held a banquet at his house for Jesus and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with him. Yeah, he's honoring Jesus by having him as the guest. But I think there's more going on here. You know, I think there's a couple of reasons why he has this banquet. The first is that he is happy. I mean, Levi is celebrating a newfound life and freedom that he now has. His worldly friends might not understand why he's just walked away from his cushy job, but he is celebrating. I love what Bishop J.C. Ryle says about this. Nothing can happen to a man which ought to be such an occasion of joy as his conversion. It is far more important event than being married or coming of age or being made a nobleman or receiving a great fortune. It is the birth of an immortal soul. It is the rescue of a sinner from hell. It is a passage from death to life. It is being made a king and priest forevermore. It is being provided for both in time and eternity. It is adoption into the noblest and richest of all families, the families of family of God. Oh, happy day when Jesus washed my sins away. I think that's one of the reasons why he's having this party. He's happy. Merriment, joy. The second reason, I think, is love. For his friends, for his lost friends, he invites them all. All the local thugs come round to his place. The tax collectors and their hangers-on. Others, it says. Others. What do we mean by that? We don't know, you know. But basically, the, the people of ill repute, the, the, the prostitutes, the, the, the sinners. And... Presumably, Levi, Matthew, wants his friends to meet Jesus. He's found mercy. He wants them to experience something of that. You know, this desire, this desire for your friends to encounter Jesus is the mark of every true Christian. Again, J.C. Ryle it may be safely asserted that there is no grace in the man who cares nothing about the salvation of his fellow men. The heart which is really taught by the Holy Spirit will always be full of love, charity, and compassion. The soul which has been truly called of God will earnestly desire that others may experience the same calling. 
a converted man will not wish to go to heaven alone. You can't just say, you know, he didn't just feel general love for people. Let there be love, wave a candle, world peace, yay. <laughs> no, Levi does something with his love, his care. He tidies the house. He purchases the food and the wine. He writes out the invitation. He gets some extra servants in, whatever. He opens his door. He has a big banquet with Jesus as the guest after dinner speaker. It's effort, intention, planning, reaching out. I'm sorry, but if we're not prepared to do whatever we can do with whatever we've got to reach out wherever we can, Something's not right. Church can forget its raison d'etre. We can forget what we're here for, to glorify God and to bring others into relationships so they too can glorify him. You know, back in 1739, John Wesley had to resort to preaching in the graveyards and fields to preach the gospel. The church was so respectable. There were, there were poor people who were not being reached, and he had to go out and, uh, you know, preach to them. You can uh, preach to thousands of miners early in the morning as their change of shifts, and the tears coming down their blackened, cold uh, faces as thousands came to Christ, and he reluctantly founded the Methodist Church. A hundred years later, just over a hundred years later, in 1846, William Booth tries to bring the poor into his local Methodist Church and hits all sorts of opposition. And I can read you an account. There they were in this broad, in the Broad Streets Church in 1846. And the minister, the Reverend Samuel Dunn, is seated comfortably on his red plush throne with a concord of voices swelling into the evening's fourth hymn. Foul I fly. I, sorry, foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, saviour, or I die, they're singing. And suddenly the chapel door is suddenly shattered open, and in its wake come a shuffling, shabby contingent of men and women wilting nervously under the stony faces of mill managers, shopkeepers, and their well-dressed wives. In the rear is Willful Will Booth walking behind them. To his dismay, the Reverend Dunn sees that the young Booth is actually ushering his dirty charges, whose clothes are not worth a few shillings, into the very best seats, pew holders seats, facing the pulpit. This was unprecedented for the poor if they came to chapel, entered by another door, to be segregated on benches without backs or cushions behind a partition which screened off the pulpit. And there is Booth bringing these people in to their uh, to, uh, much disapproval. 
And all too soon, he realized the unpalatable truth that Methodism had become respectable. Now, I'm not knocking Methodist churches, but that's what he found. And, you know, we find this. And ultimately, William and Catherine Booth were expelled from the church and lived for 14 years in poverty before they started the Salvation Army. But this is what happens to churches. They become respectable country clubs instead of lighthouse or lifeboat stations on the coast. And they slowly turn into nice places for nice people. And Jesus says, I have come for the sinners, for the sick, for the unrighteous, for those who realize that they're unrighteous, which, by the way, includes us. The more time goes on, the more I realize that God has got more to do in me as well. We too need to have a humble heart that doesn't claim to be righteous. We're righteous, declared righteous through Jesus. But actually, there's still a lot more to do. We need to maintain that posture of poverty and hunger and longing for more of him. And so we find that Jesus reaches out to those sort of people. And the Pharisees are complaining. The Pharisees are saying, hey, uh, you know, uh, disciples, do you realize that Jesus is eating with tax collectors and sinners? What's he doing? And Jesus knows what they're thinking. And he says, I haven't come for the righteous. I've come for those who are sick. I've come for those who recognize their need. I can't do anything with anyone who thinks that they're okay. But I can do a miracle with those who realize that they're not okay. He's a doctor who's come for the sick. A doctor finds satisfaction when he heals someone. That's what he's here for. Let me finish with one final quote from Dane Ortland in the book, Gentle and Lonely. And he says this, the doctor's joy increases to the degree that the sick come to him for help and healing. So with us and so with Christ. He doesn't get flustered and frustrated when we come to him for fresh forgiveness, for renewed pardon with distress and need and emptiness. That's the whole point. It's what he came to heal. He went down into the horror of death and plunged out through the other side in order to provide a limitless supply of mercy and grace to his people. That's the gospel, folks. It's just so profound, isn't it? If we take hold of this passage, if we take hold of what Jesus has done for this guy here, I tell you what, it could change us and it can change the world. And it did. And it still will if we live it out, if we put it into practice, if we take it to heart, if we remain humble, and if we remain open and ready to reach out to a sick and hurting and needy world that needs a saviour. So let us be those people. Let us pray together as we finish. Lord God, we do come to you in humility this morning. We say, God, we, we don't want to be high and mighty and self-righteous. We thank you that you have forgiven us. We thank you that you've lifted us up and set us free from our prison of sin. But Lord, we, we want to live in the good of that. Help us, oh God, help us to stay humble, to stay hungry for you. 
ready for you to change us more. Oh God, forgive us when we just become complacent about ourselves and complacent about those around us. Lord, we pray that you would help us to reach out, to take action, to be intentional about helping and reaching out to others with this wonderful gospel that has changed us. We rejoice in what you've done for us. In Jesus' name, amen.